This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. I feel like these days we will release a new report, you know, on an annual basis showing a skyrocketing level um, of, you know, white supremacist propaganda and materials in the community. And we get not a single bite and not a single piece of coverage. So I think in a lot of ways, these things have just become really normalized. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast. My name is Nate, and I'm your host, an American teacher abroad. Today's conversation is about anti-Semitism in the Northwest, and we're going to be talking about the work of the Anti-Defamation League, which is an organization who I am a big supporter and believer in, and some of the work they do. And one of the people who works for the ADL in the Northwest is Mary Cypress. She was a guest at Adult Six Happy Hour when we were having a conversation, and I'll link to that episode in the show notes. Uh, she's a coordinator for their efforts in the Northwest, and I want to have her on to talk about uh, what is happening with anti-Semitism in our region in the post-Trump era. I feel like there was a lot of attention paid to issues of anti-Semitism and issues of like right-wing activism in the Northwest during the Trump administration, and I don't want us to go to sleep on those issues. Uh, well, actually, you know what? Let me tell the story really fast, and we'll get to, get to the why of this. I was involved in a lot of anti-war organizing and activism in the mid-2000s when George Bush was president. And what happened basically was, was when George Bush left office and Barack Obama came into office, a lot of enthusiasm and energy behind anti-war organizing went away, And but the wars didn't go away, like the war in Afghanistan ended this year. And so there was a lot of emphasis and focus on combating radicalization and combating far-right efforts and anti-Semitism uh, during the Trump administration. And so I'm checking in on how things are going today. So, Miri, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate making the time for this. Uh, I just wonder, like, people don't wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm going to be anti-Semite. Like, this is a place that people kind of arrive at uh, through a path. What, in your experience as a advocate with the, with the ADL, like, what is the path that people go down, and how can people like myself and my listeners uh, interrupt that path when we see somebody engaging in it? It's a great question. I think, like anti-Semitism and perhaps other forms of racism or oppression, these are sometimes forms of conscious or unconscious bias that people are raised with or they absorb messages about throughout their lifetime. And I agree with you. I mean, the ADL theory is that no baby wakes up racist, no baby wakes up, you know, anti-Semitic when they're born into the world. But these are messages and information and stereotypes that slowly we accumulate over time. So I do think um, what we see, I think today is sometimes more direct forms of anti-Semitism. And, you know, we can get into what kind of patterns we're seeing right now with COVID comparisons to Nazism and some of the offensive language, you know, around the Jewish community. Um, you know, we can definitely dive into kind of concepts of anti-Zionism and, and just modern day anti-Semitism and what we're seeing. But I do kind of think for most people, it's probably 
a more subtle belief system that they either grow up with or absorb absorb over time through society. And I do think there needs to be more of an emphasis on how to interrupt it. I think one of the unique things that we see about our work is that we sometimes say that anti-Semitism is is one of or or is the most the oldest form of hatred. Mm. So I think it's really interesting to think about what that actually means and and how it connects to the conversations today around anti-racism and white nationalism and, and how we interrupt systems of oppression. Listening to you talk through that, I realized I should have asked a different question first. So let's start with this question. Sure. Uh, how do you define the term anti-Semitism as an organization and personally? And like, how does that manifest? How do you see it manifest like in the everyday world nowadays? It's such a good question. So I think I'm fortunate to work at an organization that's been around for over a hundred years. And we're very focused on language and we're very focused on data in terms of determining our strategies and solutions. So I'm just going to review the ADL definition of anti-Semitism on our website because I couldn't say it better myself, but I'll tell you a little bit about my personal take on what's going on in the world right now. So the way that we define it is anti-Semitism is a belief or behavior hostile towards Jews just because they're Jewish. It can take the form of religious teachings that proclaim inferiority of Jews or political efforts to isolate, oppress, or otherwise injure them. It may also include prejudiced or stereotyped views about Jews. And, you know, don't worry, we at the ADL have a long backgrounder on the history and different terms as we define them. But I think it's 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 interesting in my work because what I'm seeing today is just so much fluidity when it comes to issues of anti-Semitism and hate and you know, we try to be super careful at the ADL about how we define it and when we call it out because we want to hold ourselves to high standards just as we would elected officials or, or other government leaders. So we try to really parse out almost on a daily basis, you know, what were what was the language? What was the context? And, and it can be hard to do that um, in a world where there's just a 24-7 news cycle and there's a lot of, you know, different hate-related incidents bubbling up. But I think one of the things that I really saw happen after the summer with the most recent conflict in the Middle East was the technical definition of anti-Semitism is sometimes different than the feeling of anti-Semitism perceived by the Jewish community. Hmm. And sometimes even something that we might not classify as technical anti-Semitism can feel like it to people who are in that space or of that community. So I do think it's 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 an interesting kind of phenomenon that's just been pervasive for centuries, but it is manifesting in, in interesting and I think new ways today. And in some ways it's it's kind of repackaged as well. I, I, I want to talk on something there you said there. You said it's manifesting in interesting in different ways today. Like for example. Well, I would say as we've seen the rise of white nationalism over the past couple of years, I think we've seen how anti-Semitism is just so embedded in the system of white supremacy that we're seeing. I think a lot of times, maybe as people talk about different forms of oppression or racism, the concept of anti-Semitism is just left out of the conversation. But if you think Mm -hmm. about a lot of the basis of white nationalist beliefs and what ties them together, I do think a lot of times anti-Semitism seems to come out in a lot of different ideologies. And I know this is something that Eric Ward from the Western State Center talks about a lot, which is 
you know, I don't think it really gets enough attention, but he talks about it as this through line that really connects all of these white nationalist groups together. And if you just think about, you know, Charlottesville and this real rise of the right, you know, what they were chanting was not, I mean, I'm sure they had many, you know, racist tropes and all of the other things, but it was Jews will not replace us. So I think it's important to think about the connectivity of anti-Semitism to the other forms of oppression. And I think sometimes we don't always, um, we don't always focus on that enough. A term that you used that I don't hear very often, and I want to kind of unpack this term and situate it in the conversation, you use the term anti-Zionism. And so how do you define anti-Zionism and how do you distinguish it? How do you, and how do you draw a distinction between that and anti-Semitism? It's a great question. So we define anti-Zionism as a prejudice against the Jewish movement for self-determination and the right of the Jewish people to have a homeland in the state of Israel. I think sometimes it can be motivated by anti-Semitism, or it also, I think, very recently can create a climate in which anti-Semitism becomes more acceptable. So I think it's it's at the core um, the belief that when Israel, um, you know, takes actions that aren't agreeable, um, you know, or people don't support, I think there are a lot of um, folks, you know, certainly in the progressive movement that often look at how to delegitimize Israel and basically think about how the Jewish state doesn't have a right to exist, as opposed to the legitimate criticism of its government or its policies. And I think what we've seen is that that can have really dangerous impacts when people aren't thinking about how they use their language or their actions in a nuanced way, because, you know, connecting an entire group of people, let's say in the diaspora in the United States, you know, with the Jewish community here, and, and some certainly might have strong ties to the land of Israel, and some, you know, some might not. Um, the relationship, I think, is different based on every person, but that kind of, um, that kind of criticism, I think, can be really dangerous, because I think it's, unfair. I think, um, you know, if you want to apply that kind of rigorous um, and, you know, aggressive argument, you have to also think of a lot of other countries that you could perceive as violating human rights. And, you know, I don't really think when people talk about, you know, China or Myanmar or Russia, they talk about the country not existing. I mean, they criticize, you know, the government. So I think that kind of conflation with a people, um, and a country can be really challenging and it certainly can lead to a really hostile climate. That's interesting because I, if I'm being fully transparent myself in the audience, I've been a critic of some of the policies of the Israeli state, but I also believe that Israel has a right to exist and should be recognized. And like, I believe in a solution, like yada, yada, yada. And so I've been a critic of some of the actions the government has taken, but I would not consider myself an anti-Zionist. But I was accused once of being anti-Zionist. So when you said that term, my ears kind of perked up a little bit. So I was curious about that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I think even at the ADL, we try to create a space where, you know, we as an organization that, you know, has really strong roots in the Jewish community, even though we fight hate on behalf of all people and we care about the civil rights of all people, you know, we also have times where we vehemently disagree with Israeli politics or the government's decision. Um, and, and we try to create that space to say, you can disagree and, you know, we can, we can have respectful arguments and and feel strong feelings. But when you talk about a state not being able to exist, that's kind of when you cross across a line that's troubling. 
Well, so I actually wanted to go here later, but we're kind of here right now. So let me kind of po- <laughs> we've post arrived. Hey, here we are. <laughs> um, something that I see happen, particularly in online discourse, is that any criticism of the state of Israel by some folks is basically delegitimized and labeled as being anti-Semitic or anti-Semitism. And that to me, as a black American who understands, well, let me, let me back up a little bit more. So my positionality in this is, is that I try to be very judicious about when I say that a person or an act is racist. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't throw that word around very often and I reserve it as, as often as possible, along with the F word fascist, uh, for like the cases where I think it applies. I see in a lot of online discourse, and particularly along on, on, the, on the political right in the U.S., that any criticism of the state of Israel, like the immediate response is, you're being anti-Semitic. And so in, in, from my lens, uh, using that uh, response, that rhetoric, when somebody's making what otherwise is a legitimate criticism, like delegitimizes real acts and desensitizes us to real acts of anti-Semitism. That's, that's my perspective. Okay. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Okay. So when you see somebody doing that, like, what's your response within the community? Well, I think it's a problem, I guess, in two respects. Mm-hmm. One is, I think, I understand it a little bit more when it's coming from a person who's Jewish, because I do understand, I guess I should back up. I should say first, I think we need to apply rigorous standards for ourselves and others when we use these kind of terms. Because like you said, with racism, we want to use them in ways that are meaningful. And when you lob around a term so much, it decreases its value and its weight. So I think when others do it, we should call them out and we should talk about how we need to use more rigorous standards and more thoughtful applications of the word and I I do think that's something that's important to inject into the discourse. And I think also to illustrate that the Jewish community, um, you know, there are perfectly acceptable ways to express criticism of something without labeling something as anti-Semitic. But I also think within the Jewish community, what I'm seeing is a lot of, I hate to use the word because it seems cliche, but it's emotional. And I see a lot of heartbreak when it comes to these issues. I know myself when I've personally been in a situation with, you know, even people who are really close to me that are saying things that are hurtful about the state, it it does hurt. And I don't label them as anti-Semitic in any way, but I do understand people's reaction that it can hurt because it's a place that, you know, one can care about, but can also recognize that there are serious flaws with how the government is enacting serious policies. And I think because of that care, the hurt maybe feels a little bit stronger. But I do think one of the things that I've been thinking a lot more about this summer um, after the the conflict is really about how we as Jewish leaders need to be a lot more careful with what we label as anti-Semitism. And, you know, I think there can be rigorous debate about this and people are going to have different reactions about, you know, what is and isn't and what the ADL deems to be, you know, a certain definition or a certain take is, is different than other people. So we do respect that difference of opinion, but I do think it's really important to kind of parse out the response and just be a little bit more nuanced as well, um, as opposed to kind of having that gut reaction using the label. So I think, I think like everything within these, within these topics, it's complicated. 
Yeah, yeah. Something you said caught my ear, I, and I hadn't thought about this before. You view it differently when somebody who is Jewish responds to that way than somebody who is like outside of the community. And so I, I, this is not one of the questions I was planning to talk about, but like, here we are. How do you get your head around the support for the Israeli state that evangelical Christians in the United States like offer when they also don't seem to actually support Jewish people? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's a it's a challenging issue. And I think there's a ton of variety of opinion in the Jewish community about evangelical support for Israel. I think some appreciate it and appreciate the diversity of, you know, religious groups and races and ethnicities that come to the table to express support for the Jewish state. And I, I think, frankly, a lot of people are wary of that kind of support and what the implications are. I do think it's interesting because I used to think about this more in a national way, um, just in terms of national politics and organizations and how this manifests itself in federal policies. But I'll also say just from a regional perspective, we see this bearing out a lot in the Pacific Northwest too, with some of the more conservative legislators in Idaho and Montana, particularly where we work with, you know, being, um, you know, more conservative members who are, you know, I don't know if they're evangelical or, you know, what kind of, you know, certain religious beliefs, but, um, you know, Christian legislators being very active about, you know, issues around Israel and state legislators. So it's so interesting because then you get the kind of complete opposite in more progressive spaces in the region too. So I think there's a lot to see how that trickles down, but, um, I don't know if I, you know, if, if we as an organization have an opinion one way or the other. Um, I think it's something I need to look into more. Yeah. All right. Um, the real question that I want to ask and the conversation I kind of want to have is, is what is happening in the U.S. and in the Northwest particular right now? So, like, we had an election. Donald Trump is no longer in the White House. Uh, people who are vehement anti-Semites and... Uh, right-wing street, ball, street ballers like the Proud Boys are not getting uh, dog-whistled and megaphoned like to encourage their behavior. At the same time, like those people like have taken their masks off and exposed themselves, uh, exposed their faces, I should say, not themselves. That sounds like me sure. Never mind. Stop right there. Uh, I, so I guess my question is like, how is the terrain on the ground different now, roughly a year after the election? I would say... Even though, you know, the former president is not in office anymore, the Pandora's box is open and it's like spilled open and it's not going back um, at this particular moment. And we're seeing um, far right groups and white nationalist groups more emboldened than ever and taking more action than ever. And it's just spilling out into everyday life. I, you know, I think the January 6th, um, insurrection was just a huge national reckoning with this movement that has always existed, but is much more active and, and out there than ever. And it's been really interesting to see the evolution of these groups over the past couple of years, because I remember like when I first came to Tacoma, for example, and I first started with the ADL, we were, you know, we still remain very nuanced about how we describe different white nationalist groups, but you know, the Proud Boys at that point were like an alt-light group. 
They weren't, mm-hmm. you know, white supremacists, and that's not how we talked about them. And we talked about the spectrum of white supremacy and how a lot of these groups, um, you know, kind of sugarcoated some of their views, but they weren't out there. And we would not label them, you know, as as full-on white supremacists. So that spectrum has like really shifted over the past couple of years of as we've seen more groups emboldened. And I would say just to give one example of something that I'm seeing that really is troubling is that um, there was a Portland school board meeting this week and the Proud Boys came um, and were just there like harassing people. So I just, I don't know, it seems like in some ways we're awoken, but I don't think people truly recognize the level of activity or, or problematic nature. I mean, I wonder if, you know, January 6th happened and in some ways it's dominating the news cycle, but I think in other ways, people don't realize the full extent of the problem. So it's definitely something we're trying to tackle from a lot of different lenses, from public policy, um, from an educational lens, um, you know, so it just, it really is a, a, a beast of a problem that deserves a ton of attention and work. I, I'm glad you brought up January 6th because one thing that I have struggled with that I feel like I'm a crazy person about is essentially 25 to 30,000 Americans who were clearly batshit crazy, like showed up and tried to murder members of Congress. Uh, they tried to do so, a lot of them flying Confederate flags, a lot of them uh, wearing things that were like representative anti-Semitism. And then they just like returned back to society in their jobs, many of them in law enforcement. And like the, they're just like, have they've returned like there's 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 this like wow those crazy people did those things but then like we don't acknowledge those crazy people walk among us today and are like and still engage in these activities it's a very weird dissonance thing that's happened ah uh, stresses me out to think about it um you, you mentioned that there's a continuation of events that are happening and you mentioned the incident at the school board i i, I wonder are could you describe some of the other events and occurrences that have happened regionally? Like, is this, are these things that like are not making it into the news or, or what are some of the other events that have happened? I guess it's, com- it's kind of a combination of activity. I think some of it makes the news and some of it is stuff that we just track. Mm-hmm. You know, I think for what I've noticed during my four years at the ADL is that the types of things that got news coverage a couple of years ago do not elicit any response from media anymore. I remember That's when a terrible I sign, by the way, That's a terrible yeah. and terrifying sign. And it's, it speaks to the normalization of this kind of behavior. You know, when I first joined ADL, we were rebuilding our presence. We were putting out a lot of press releases to talk about the level of white supremacist propaganda that was coming out. We would talk about activity. Press was really interested in what was going on and, I feel like these days we will release a new report, you know, on an annual basis showing a skyrocketing level um, of, you know, white supremacist propaganda and materials in the community. And we get not a single bite and not a single piece of coverage. So I think in a lot of ways, these things have just become really normalized. And, And what we're seeing, I think some of it is, some of it's more severe than others. I think some of it's you know, organizing and intimidation and protests like we've seen in, you know, Portland and other areas. Um, I was speaking recently with a leader in Spokane who was saying that a couple of weeks ago, 4,000 white nationalists um, came to Spokane for some type of protest, um, you know, post-January 6th, which I feel like in my ADL world wasn't even on my radar and I didn't read a lot of news about. So I think that kind of organizing is is shocking. And I think certainly 
we've also seen some new trends evolve with, you know, the prevalence and attention that QAnon has gotten and other conspiracy um, theorists type of groups that have been evolving around misinformation and disinformation and the prevalence of technology um, in all of these spaces. So I think the problem is here. Um, I don't think as a society we're paying enough attention to how to respond to it. All right. Uh, let's take a break here. And when we come back, I want to talk about the overlapping Venn diagrams of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. And I also want to have you unpack for us why when people make comparisons to uh, the Holocaust and Nazism, when talking about COVID, that's an act of anti-Semitism. So we'll be back. And we are back. This episode of the Nerd Farmer podcast is brought to you by Libro.fm. They are my audiobook seller of choice. Libro.fm is a rival to Audible, who is not evil and owned by Amazon. If you sign up for a subscription with Libro.fm, you can get one book a month for the price of $14.99. Um, I used my credit this month to buy a friend a copy of Dune, which, by the way, the sticker price on it is $50. So I saved a bunch of money. Right now, I'm listening to a book called The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. It's an amazing book, basically, about the cost of racism and how racism impacts all of us. Essentially, like the premise is, is that in the 1920s, the 1930s, and the 1940s, and the 1950s, there was a vigorous appetite in the United States for public programs. There was even talk of job guarantees, of healthcare expansion. And essentially what happened in the United States is, is that the second the black Americans gained full, gained full citizenship and became eligible for those programs, the desire for those went away. And what happens is, is that because of racial resentment and the desire to keep programs from black people, essentially we're all worse off. So what the, essentially racism harms all of us, whether we realize it or not. And so that's the premise of the book. Heather McGee is an organizer and was leader at Demos. It's a fascinating, fascinating listen. Uh, the way that she explains some of the stats in particular around Medicaid expansion and who uh, has expanded Medicaid and who hasn't, and like the repercussions that has for low-income families are just jaw-dropping, jaw-dropping, jaw-dropping. Like, for example, basically to qualify for Medicaid in the state of Texas, you need to make below $5,000 a year. And so essentially there's a program that's available that can help people stay alive that's being denied because of res racial resentment and we don't want black and brown people on it. So if you are looking for a new book, The Sum of Us by Heather McGee is a great listen. Download it from Libro FM using promo code Tacoma. If you sign up using that promo code, you will get two books for the price of one your first month. Also, I want to uh, recommend and encourage you to check out Channel 253 and think about becoming a member. On this network, we have conversations and give perspectives you're not going to get elsewhere. Miri just talked a moment ago about how the issues that are happening to her community are not getting traction in the press. We are having this conversation about these issues. Uh, on a recent episode of Crossing Division, uh, Evelyn Lopez, who is an attorney, went through the documents that uh, were released by a prosecutor about the Pierce County Sheriff and kind of broke those down for us. That's the kind of in-depth coverage that is worth paying for. A membership to Channel 253 is $4 a month or $40 a year. It's worth it. It's worth it. And if you join, you get access to our Slack channel. And in our Slack channel, there's an entire conversation going on right now in Stonks and Money, which is the meme investment and cryptocurrency channel about Shiba Inu versus Dogecoin and what's happening. And also a deep conversation about Steve Haverly's boat. So think about joining as a member, channel253.com slash membership. All right, Mary, enough of my shucking and my jokes over here. Let's get serious again. Wait, can I actually say one interesting thing? Oh, shoot. Okay, so I've been following this story about the Pierce County Sheriff, 
Mm-hmm. And it's actually so interesting because two years ago in Washington, we passed an anti-swatting law. And that's the law that's actually being used against the sheriff um, because it's a false reporting law, basically. So it's so interesting because when we passed it, I would have never thought it would have been used against law enforcement, um, you know, about, you know, around someone who's targeting community of color. So it's just so interesting to see the application of it today. Look at us. Police can't follow laws either. I, I, I This isn't the conversation that we're having right now, but like yeah. when those like state troopers across the country resigned because like, or, or around the state resigned because they didn't get vaccinated. I'm like, good. Like the ones who are all conspiratorial, like I'm not getting vaccinated are the ones we don't need. So like, like to the sea with them all. Um, you mentioned earlier on, and it really stuck in my head that comparisons between COVID restrictions, vaccine mandates, mask mandates, and the Holocaust are a manifestation of anti-Semitism. It's obvious once you say it, but it's something that hadn't quite clicked in my head. So can you talk first about why those comparisons are offensive to the community and then talk in particular about why they're examples of anti-Semitism? So I guess I I don't think we would say off the bat. I, I think it's a case by case basis and we try to look at every statement differently. I would not say those statements are anti-Semitic. Okay. But I would say they're veering in that direction. Um, We are seeing across the country, and especially in the Pacific Northwest, elected officials make COVID-19 health restriction comparisons to Nazism and the Holocaust all the time. And I was thinking about this the other day because I've had to speak to so many reporters um, about this, whether it's like the New York Times or Newsweek or um, Pacific Northwest outlets. I honestly do not even understand how people get to the point of making that comparison because it is so foolish and ridiculous. And when journalists interview me about it, they apologize multiple times because they're embarrassed to even ask why it's offensive because it is so weird. So I would just say that it's weird. Like, why would you, why would you say that? What, why? Um, But yes, it's, it's ridiculous to connect a public health effort that is intended to save lives and improve our society and, and improve public health with something related to the like systemic murder of 6 million Jewish people and millions of others. And, you know, I just, I think of like my own family in this situation and the centuries of anti-Semitism that they endured, you know, leading up to genocide. Um, so for one, it's just unbelievably offensive to people who have a connection, you know, or a family legacy to that, that moment in history, which is many, many people in the Jewish community. Um, you know, if you're, if you're from that part of Europe, I don't know if I would say it's necessarily anti-Semitic. I would say it's offensive, disturbing, shocking, bizarre. Um, So I'd be interested to go back to see if, you know, when I'm releasing the statements, I am not calling it out as anti-Semitic, but I am saying all those other adjectives that I just used. Um, But, you know, I I don't want the Jewish community or our history to be used to score cheap political points or make a point. And I do think a lot of this goes back to 
ignorance and, and lack of education. You know, I think a lot of times when we correct people, you know, I guess they have this public reckoning moment that what they've said is like horribly offensive. Um, so I don't know. I look at some of these town halls and a lot of these people who are wearing their yellow stars and, you know, holding their hands up. And I just, I just wonder. Um, but I think it makes me double down on our need to educate and not just correct, you know, a incorrect political statement. It really goes back to the need for education starting at an early age around bias, around different forms of hate and around anti-Semitism, which, which is one of the biggest pieces of what we do at the ADL. I want to go back to something that we kind of talked about earlier on, but I don't feel like I, I, I want to know more about this. When you look at people who are engaging in anti-Semitic behavior or engaging in uh, incidents of hate towards your community, what is the path that they have gone down to get there? Like what is like what, what from your research or your experience are like the vehicles of radicalization or the vehicles by which they're getting their misinformation? Like what is what is the, the route that somebody takes before they end up being a anti-Semitic Semitic chud who's like attacking your community? It's a, it's a good question and I think a complicated one. And I don't know if there's any one answer. I think some of it is- I'll take six. Okay, I'll just give you 10. Um, <laughs> I think some of it is just really pervasive age old stereotypes that have existed for a long time around, you know, Jews and you know, the control of like financial systems. And, um, you know, I think obviously in, in recent years, we've seen how in times of political peril for certain demographics, you know, holding up certain groups as, um, you know, giving us some answers as to why their fates, you know, aren't going well, like seems to be something that's clearly rearing its head. <clears throat> I think some of it is just kind of like built into societal messages. Some of it is, I think, within our education systems. Um, I mean, to our earlier point, like the lack of Holocaust education mandated in, in school districts across the country, I'm not necessarily saying that is the root of anti-Semitism, but understanding history is certainly an important piece of it. I also think we have seen um, with the advent of social media and people being able to find community um, outside of their, you know, everyday geography, that has been a huge place where anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and misinformation has been able to really thrive. And we've been really concerned with the lack of um, responsiveness by different companies to take down, um, you know, information about the Jews that are it's clearly offensive. Um, it's inaccurate. I mean, it took Facebook years and years and years to even um, remove Holocaust denial from their platform. So the issue of online hate and online anti-Semitism is a huge and growing one for us. And we've been working really hard to tackle it from a lot of different angles. So, and I would say, you know, going through my own experience with um, this trial I just participated in um, when I was targeted by Adam Waffen and the FBI ended up arresting four different people. It was an interesting personal insight to think about how these four very different people became radicalized and decided to join 
a neo-Nazi organization and not just join it, but do something and, and threaten people, um, you know, who are activists like myself and journalists. And I guess what I saw is like a lot of different journeys and a lot of different people. What I saw is a lot of people who were really broken, um, that seemed like they came from really disadvantaged backgrounds who were looking for a sense of belonging and connection and purpose. I think, you know, one of the four is someone who's really hardened, um, and really hateful. And I think the other three were really people grasping who landed in um, a, a very unfortunate um, community. And, you know, I kind of go back and forth between sympathy slash empathy and, you know, also wanting people to be held accountable when they do things that are clearly hateful and wrong. But I think what I saw was the journey of three very, very sad people who found hate. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's an easy one to answer. And I think it, it really varies. I think you actually just gave six reasons like I asked for. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want to pose a question here about something that's kind of like near and dear to my heart. So we're having this conversation the week that the Islamic Center of Tacoma was set on fire. And I live here in the UAE, and one of the things that happened since I moved here was a normalization of relations between the Gulf states and the state of Israel. And so, like, there is now commerce and trade and people, like, going to and fro. There are daily flights to Tel Aviv. Uh, there are students who are Israeli students who have enrolled in international schools here in the city. And so, like, to me, it's always been interesting to look at Islam and look at Judaism and just see cousins. So I, I guess my, my question for you is, is, what is the relationship between Islamophobia and anti-Semitism in the way that you see it manifesting in the States? It's such a good question. And certainly I don't want to represent myself as an expert on Islamophobia because I'm certainly sure. not. But, you know, I think from my vantage point in, you know, my work at the ADL, I think our communities share some struggles and share some differences between how these different forms of oppression manifest. Um, you know, I think for the Jewish community, I, I do try to represent that, you know, we're multi-ethnic, we're multiracial. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important because I think people forget that. And, you know, I think a lot of the times we're left out of the current conversation around anti-racism and discrimination because most people, and at least myself, you know, we're white. And that creates an entirely different form of privilege that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis. And we have to acknowledge that and, and call that out. But it's also this really weird experience where, I know this isn't exactly your question, but I'll get to it. Um, you know, privilege and vulnerability can exist side by side. And I think maybe to some extent, we've seen that a bit with the Asian American and Pacific Islander community too. But especially for the Jewish community, it's kind of this weird space of otherness to be in where you never, I, like when I was growing up and you had to like fill out those bubbles on the SATs and it's like, what are you? I, I never really felt like I was, like I looked white, but I never felt white because I always felt different being a religious minority and, and always felt like, it's not like I felt like the other, but I felt different. So I think for the Jewish community, it's a lot of grappling with these kinds of issues. And we're seeing anti-Semitism, like we've been talking about, just manifest in hard ways. And I think I would, I would, I can't speak for the Muslim community, but I do think in some ways 
the struggles are probably similar and different. I think some of it is based on, you know, classic forms of oppression and discrimination, how we other people, how we stereotype, how we are ignorant and, and uninformed about, you know, religion and culture and identity. So I would say there's probably a lot of similarities in between, you know, Jews and Muslims beyond, you know, much history and religion and, and so much that we share. But I also would probably gesture to say that I think a lot of um, the challenges that the Muslim community is facing that I've seen to be different, you know, I think with issues of profiling, um, you know, obviously that's that's a huge one. That's one that the Jewish community doesn't experience. Um, you know, we are fortunate and it sounds, it's hard to say, but we have good relationships with law enforcement and federal government agencies and local law enforcement agencies, I think for the most part, try to make a good faith effort to help synagogues and different institutions. And I know, you know, for the Muslim community, I, I'm sure that's a very, very different kind of relationship. So I think there are some, some similarities and there are probably a lot of differences with how our different forms of oppression manifest today. But, you know, I reached out to the Islamic Center of Tacoma, um, you know, when the fire happened and, you know, obviously it sounds like the investigation is still ongoing and, and they, I think they did find the suspect, but I just said, my heart goes out to you. You know, if you, if you need us, let us know. Um, we also recently saw this horrible ransacking and vandalism of um, the Sikh Community Center in um, Kent, and we're really close with the Sikh community as well. So it's it's really sad to see these kinds of religious institutions just regularly um, harmed. And I think what we've seen in the Jewish community around our institutions is that while we still definitely have moments of you know vandalism, and we've had you know Seattle synagogues like targeted by white supremacists with, you know, like propaganda on their front doors, we've had to invest in so much security to just make our daily lives safe. And, you know, I don't know how other religious minorities are grappling with that issue, but I would probably venture to say that's something that we've been dealing with for decades now. I, I can't remember ever going to um, a Jewish day school or a synagogue or a community center without seeing an armed guard there at all times where people are there. So I think if that's like one message I would like to get to the listeners, it's yeah. privilege and vulnerability is kind of an interesting balance, but also the extent to which <clears throat> maybe we're experiencing different forms of oppression than other groups, um, maybe not religious minorities, but you know, that, that kind of security guard situation is very, very real. Yeah. Uh, in October, uh, I went to Rome and visited. And one of the things that we did on our trip is we went to basically, they call it the Jewish quarter. And I it know. Was a neighborhood. Do you eat artichokes? Right. Uh, artichokes. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. and it's I such a, lot a of beautiful, mark. yeah, a beautiful yeah. like neighborhood. But, but, Right. But the thing that I noticed also was the higher security presence there as well. And so for folks who are listening, don't know, like there was a thriving Jewish community in Rome uh, and basically Mussolini sold them out and they were uh, they were they were shipped out of the country and turned over to to the German allies. But the community in the neighborhood remains. So over a thousand people basically were, were taken from the from the from the country or from the city. But the security presence there for the remaining members of the Jewish community was strong. Like there were armed guards all over the place. And so when you said that, I thought about that incident. A another thing I think I just want to kind of offer to the audience, this isn't a question necessarily for you, but just me spitballing here is, yeah. is that 
I, I really appreciate what you said about you understand that you are a religious minority, uh, but you also have like the benefit of whiteness for the most part. One of the elements of Islamophobia that we don't talk about is how much Islamophobia is wrapped up in anti-black racism. Yeah. So in the United States, the majority of Arabs in the United States are actually Christian because of our immigration policy. And we basically have a lot of a lot of allowed a lot of Lebanese Christians and Egyptian Christians come to the United States. The majority of people in the U.S. who are Muslim are black, either because they are members of the Nation of Islam or they came from Somalia or they came from like East Africa or something like that. And so when we're talking about Islamophobia and elements of Islamophobia is anti-black racism, whether it's said openly or not. And so one of my things that I kind of have in my head is, is whenever I hear somebody making Islamophobic comments in public, I assume they make anti-black comments in private and I can't mess with them. So, mm. all right. The actual question for you, not me preaching anymore, I guess, is, is... No, I think you made a great point. And, and I think one that I was trying to bear out as well. I mean, I, yeah. I would think that the experience of a lot of American Muslims is, is based on the racial experience. And I think probably for the majority of Jews, it's different. Yeah, yeah we make a good team. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how your anti-bias programs that the ADL has been rolling out are working and then maybe how listeners can get involved in this work if they'd like to? Yeah, I joined the ADL because I love our education work. And when Charlottesville happened, I had a one-year-old and I just thought, oh my God, this is a nutty world. And what can we do to make it better? And it just seemed like education was the answer. And what I really like about the ADL is that we have such a long history. We've been around for over a hundred years since 1913 and since the 80s, we've actually had this institute called the World of Difference Institute. And it's kind of cool to think about 40 years ago, people were trying to teach young kids about the roots of bias and understanding and appreciating identity and how to create cultures of respect in their schools and, and be leaders in their communities around this. So I really give the people that came before me a lot of props for having this really incredible vision, um, you know, long before I joined the organization. And today what that looks like is that we are one of the largest deliverers of anti-bias education nationwide. And I think it's interesting because a lot of people say ADL anti-Semitism, why don't you do that? And we do anti-Semitism education and we have great programs, but I think the ability to provide educational content and program that can inspire such a universal audience is something that's so important for our organization to make inroads in broader society. And we're so proud of the work we do. Um, our programs are K through 12 and we have college and you know adult programs as well, but the real like meat and potatoes is that K through 12 type of programming. And why is it important? Um, you know, kids as young as like two through four to five start to notice difference and start to call it out. And, you know, I have a four-year-old now who asks me questions all the time about, um, we talk about ableism, we talk about race, we talk about religion. Um, kids start to notice these things really, really young. And if parents or educators don't have the tools to address it, you know, I think it's really detrimental to their development and inability to kind of articulate and understand the world around them and what the other means and, and how you approach difference. So, we have two different types of programs that we run. One is a little bit more loose and it's called our No Place for Hate Initiative. And it's a K through 12 program where basically 
any K through 12 school in the Pacific Northwest or across the country can sign this pledge. And our educators work with them to basically help them have a student led committee. And I think the nice thing is that it's student led and Mm -hmm. it's comprised of students from all over the school, um, different grades and in different perspectives and different backgrounds. So it's not just, you know, the A plus students or just the athletes. It's trying to be representative of the student body. And we put the the onus on the students. So we say, what are the issues you care about? What are the problems that you're seeing at your school? And what are three different school-wide activities you can implement to create more inclusion and more respect? And you know, we we walk them through the process the whole way. We provide resources. Um, we have tons of activities and programs and you know, curriculum ideas and book ideas and all these things, but kids come up with what they really care about. And some of them are super savvy, like QR code campaigns around tackling intolerance. And some of them are like elementary school projects that are more art-based. So it's really nice. And we award them with a no place for hate banner at the end of the year. And we work with them year over year to do this program and to hopefully inspire them to continue working on their school climate. And we see a lot of schools with issues around bias incidents and hate incidents, especially right now. Everything trickles down. Our schools are microcosms for what we're seeing. So when xenophobia is on the rise, it's on the rise in schools. And when racism is on the rise, it's on the rise in schools. So I think we're seeing tremendous growth with and curiosity um, to do more of this work. And then we also do really, really in-depth training for educators and young people. Um, It's not a light touch or framework. It's like multi-hour kind of anti-bias training where we bring in educators or facilitators from different identity backgrounds to do really extensive diving on understanding identity and understanding the manifestations of bias and understanding different forms of oppression. And then how do you champion? And now that you know what you know, what do you do about it? So we've been really it's been really interesting to see post George Floyd and also in the COVID climate, like how all of these things have influenced our education programs a lot, because it's been obviously, as you know, as an educator, a really, really taxing two years. And I think particularly last year, we just saw kids saturated with Zoom and online school, but we also saw a huge opportunity with educators who were just really fired up and really curious about how to talk about world events post-George Floyd with their students. So we saw a really big um, moment to connect with them. And the work is really interesting. It depends on, you know, what school district we are in and, you know, what's the political climate and the geography and all of that varies a lot. But, you know, I'm, 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 we're fortunate that we're able to be there at the right time, you know, for a lot of these schools. And I hope that this will just become more integrated into their cultures moving forward. If a teacher or a principal or a school board member or an educator of any variety is listening to this and they want to tap into these programs, uh, what should they do? Call us, contact us. Um, our, you know, our, our website, seattle.adl.org. Um, we're at ADLPNW on tons of different social media channels, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You know, let us know how we can be of help. Sometimes it's a program um, and sometimes it's kind of like a one size fits all, although we try to really meet every school where they are and tackle the specific issues that they're dealing with. Um, And sometimes it's just kind of behind the scenes work to give principals or parents or teachers advice about how to navigate tricky issues when it relates to hate or bias that come up in the school. So we are, you know, we're here and, and we're here to help and 
it's a really interesting environment right now with both this, you know, huge hunger and, and curiosity around how to talk about race and bias with young people. And then we also have these like really troubling, you know, critical race theory type of things happening where people are, you know, politicizing education and, and students to make a political point. So it's just a kind of a wild, wild world right now. Oh, you brought up CRT. Dang it. I was going to get us out of here. Okay. I know. So sorry. <laughs> here's my wonder. When you were talking about the anti-bias work, is your anti-bias work being targeted by this critical race theory moral panickers? It is. It is. I mean, I hate to raise the flag because we want to keep it on the down low, but you know, it's, it is teaching about racism and bias and it's just such an interesting time. Um, and it's such an un unfortunate trend and there's so much, um, I don't know, there's so much ignorance. There's so much conflation. Like we're seeing a lot of conflation right now, like ethnic studies and critical race theory, um, I don't know. Our region is so varied in terms of politics and demographics. And, you know, on the one hand, we're seeing critical race theory, you know, arguments and conversations like totally injected to the national and, and regional education debates and local ones too. And then we also see more conservative areas where sometimes we see, like, I'll give one example, like, even black educators like uncomfortable with ADL's definitions of racism. So it's just like, there's so much across the political spectrum um, and the personal spectrum when it comes to these kinds of issues. Man, man. All right. So much more to talk about. Uh, I want to thank you for making time today and having this conversation. Like I just appreciate you as an advocate and as an activist and the work that you do and the ADL does. Like if you're listening to this and you think that Miriam and the organization can be helpful in your efforts, like call them, like they're there to be used. And if you're listening to this and like you have some extra ducats around, uh, think about making a donation. Miriam, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Can I make one plug? Plug away. I'm launching a podcast and I'm super excited. That's why I have my cool microphone in, and my cool headphones. Um, it's called Pacific Northwest Coffee and Conversation. We're going to launch it this November and we are going to provide people with some inspiring material. Hate can be hard and real, but also depressing. And it's a hard world right now. So we want to really uplift the voices of leaders in the Pacific Northwest who are advancing social justice and equity and fighting hate. And our first interview is with Dan Prinzing of the Wassmith Center for Human Rights in Boise, Idaho, who's, you know, a tremendous educator and his organization is just a role model for everybody in the civil rights and human rights space. So we're super excited. We're going to be interviewing people in education and activism, philanthropy and tech. So it should be interesting. And I think our region has a ton of inspiring voices to uplift. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. Again, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Well, Connor, forever y'all wash your hands, wear a mask in indoor spaces, be vaccinated by now, convict the police that killed Manuel Ellis and go Sounders. Channel 253 is a member supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Uh, right now, I'm listening to a book called Heather McGee. Nope. Fuck. Editor. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. 
Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.